The improbable Spanish conquest over the Mexica Empire has been a focal point for many Latin American historians. With little resources or men, and even less support from the royals, Hernan Cortez's expedition into what is now Mexico should have been a sure failure. And yet, Cortez is often considered one of the biggest successes in the conquest of the New World. This view has been held since the 16th century. So what created the success of the ill-prepared Cortez and earned him his place in the Historical Hall of Fame? How does language play an intricate role in colonization, even when the colonizers want to stomp out the existing cultures? What if Cortez's conquest over the Mexica Empire was only possible because of the collaboration of two insiders that worked as Cortez's interpreters clear up until the moment that Mexica's capital, Tenochtitlan, fell? Welcome to Nishi History, where we eschew the most famous tales and spotlight the lesser-known stories, the forgotten names, the interesting places, and the random topics of history. With me, Jessa Briggs, we'll dive deep into the archives and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of history. Today's is the story of two crucial players in Hernan Cortez's conquest of the Mexica Empire, of the importance of language and the intricacies of loyalty. It's a story of ancient civilizations fighting against modern conquerors. Today is a story of the narratives of Cortez's interpreters. But first, some background. Today's background section is going to be a little different. We're not going to go super deep into the Mexica Empire itself. And yes, I am saying Mexica with an A on purpose. I'm not just mispronouncing Mexico. The Mexica are a group of native people who settled in Central America in the early 14th century. Tenochtitlan, the capital city, was in Lake Texaco and was actually known as a city in a lake. So the Mexica of Tenochtitlan is often grouped in as part of the Aztecs, which is like a catch-all term for three or four different groups of people who had similar cultures but separate like leaders and loyalties. So when I'm saying Mexica, I'm talking about this civilization that we see in current Mexico from the 14th to the 16th centuries. For today's story... I think that's all the background we need on the Mexica. I'll sprinkle in anything else we need as we go along. For this story, our background focuses on Cortes himself, and we're going to dissect two concepts put forward by historians that try to understand Cortes's success. They try to explain Cortes's success, I should say. These concepts are first, the middle ground by historian Richard White, and second, the go-betweens by historian Alida Metcalf. I hope is how you pronounce her name. <laughs> I think first, so that we can really understand how much help Cortez needed in his conquest, we should briefly discuss his ascension into Mexico. Hernando Cortez lived from 1485 to 1547. His name was actually Hernando, and the name Hernan, which most people know him by, is actually some sort of like creative liberty or mistranslation or something like that by historians. When he was 18, Cortez, a family letdown, skipped out on law school to go on an exposition. I keep saying exposition. This is going to be such a difficult episode if I can't separate exposition from expedition. Um, so if I get really excited in the middle and say exposition, just uh, 
just know I mean expedition. So when he was 18, Cortez went on an expedition to the Caribbean. So that would have been right around 1503. He landed on the island of Hispaniola, where he lived for about a decade. And then in 1511, he joined his first Spanish conquest. He didn't lead it, but he was a pretty big player. And this conquest was the Spanish invasion of Cuba. If you've ever heard of it, the Spanish invasion of Cuba is infamously horrendous. Even under the lens of war, it was very violent and very bloody. After the Spanish conquered Cuba, Cortes became a mayor of a Cuban settlement and also was a secretary to the governor of Cuba, so he was relatively high up in Cuban politics. However, he was not even a little bit in charge, and in 1519, he absolutely did not have permission to go and conquer Mexico. In fact, he'd been told explicitly by the governor of Cuba to not do that because he had previously had permission and gotten it revoked. As I'm sure you've guessed because you've heard of Cortes and you've heard of Spanish conquistadors, Cortes went anyway. This was an open act of mutiny against Cuba and the Cuban governor, a huge no-no. So what Cortes did to cover his ass was create a town on the Yucatan coast. Let me apologize to all the Spanish speakers right now. I am I cannot do an accent for the life of me. So I'm trying. I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to butcher the names on purpose. So Cortez landed in the Yucatan coast and created a town there under the name of the Spanish crown. Now, this is kind of confusing and we won't go through the 16th century rules and regulations of how this works. But basically, by creating this town under the Spanish authority with with or without Spanish consent, because, I mean, he didn't ask the crown if he could do this before he did it. But because he did that, Cuba didn't have any authority over Cortez anymore, so they couldn't go to Mexico and drag him back for disobeying the governor. So he was more or less safe. So there's a very simplified version of how Cortez got to Mexico. But now that he's in Mexico, promising the Spanish crown new land to keep himself safe from Cuban authorities... Cortes had to find a way to conquer the native population. He couldn't do it by brute force. He had only about 500 men with him and no backup coming. And yet, within two years, Cortes would topple the biggest Mexica empire, Tenochtitlan, and begin the decimation of the Aztec people for Spain. And how did he do this? Translators and indigenous allies. Many historians from contemporaries like Bernal Diaz, who was in Mexico with Cortez, to modern historians like Richard White and Alida Metcalf, who I name dropped earlier, they all focus on Hernan Cortez as the ultra successful conquistador, but a lot of them skirt over the indigenous help crucial to his success. Cortez would have never been able to conquer the Mexica Empire with the slim resources at his disposal without help from the inside, if you if you should say. And this help came mainly from two interpreters, Geromino de Aguilar and La Malinche, also known as Donna Maria, her baptized name, or Malintzen, her supposed birth name. I will call her La Malinche, though, because that's what my professor called her when I first learned about La Malinche, and so that's just what stuck in my brain. 
we're going to look at Aguilar and La Malinche not only in how they fulfill the concepts that we talked about earlier, that is the middle ground and the go-betweens, but also we're going to look at how historians have treated Aguilar and La Malinche when recording the conquest of Mexico. We'll look at how La Malinche and Aguilar lived on a precarious line between two cultures, a space termed the middle ground by Richard White and an occupation coined go-betweens by Alida Metcalf. To accomplish this, it is important to look at the concepts of White and Metcalf, then analyze Aguilar and La Malinche in these concepts and in historians' writings in order to determine how much weight modern historians put on these ideas and their contribution to Cortez's victory over the Mexica Empire. Okay, I've said the middle group and the go-betweens a few times now, but we're now actually going to dive into each of these concepts and try to give them a definition. Early American historians seem particularly drawn to the painful clash of cultures between indigenous Americans and their European conquering counterparts. How did this clash of cultures contribute to successful or failed conquests? Well, though advanced weapons and new diseases certainly gave European conquerors an advantage, violence could only go so far in hostile, unknown territories. Some sort of cooperation had to be negotiated for the conquerors to survive their expeditions into the New World. This idea of negotiation and some sort of cohabitation is what Richard White is interested in in his book, The Middle Ground. Now, there isn't a static or concise definition of White's concept of the middle ground because it's a pretty abstract idea. But in the book, White explained what situations birth the middle ground and why the middle ground is so necessary. He said, quote, the result of each side's attempts to apply its own cultural expectations in a new context was often a change in culture itself. Those operating in the middle ground acted for interests derived from their own culture, but they had to convince people of another culture that some mutual action was fair and legitimate, end quote. So basically, in the simplest terms and in the way that I understand, the middle ground is one culture with its own set of values expressing the reason behind the value placed on the thing, idea, etc. And it's not It's not really like a conversion or a compromise. It's really important. You can't think of the middle ground as a compromise because that's not what it is. But it is a sort of acceptance from the other culture, sort of. And like White said, often this middle ground would lead to some sort of change with both cultures as they're communicating their values to one another, sort of. (laughs) It's a really difficult idea. So let's continue with the published historians because they know what they're talking about. Historian Camilla Townsend also saw the middle ground between the Spanish conquest and the indigenous people they were trying to conquer. The Spanish couldn't just go in and kill everyone. They needed to know where the food and the water was. They needed to know how to get around and where the big cities were. Even more, they needed an understanding of how the towns and communities worked, so like the culture and the society, in order to find their weak parts. So this cultural exchange was termed as cultural legitimacy by Richard White, which means 
one culture is trying to legitimize their way of life to the other. But even still, modern historians debate what forms the middle ground took. Alita Metcalf is one historian trying to untangle Richard White's idea of the middle ground or attempts towards cultural legitimacy. The form that she believes the middle ground takes is the go-betweens. In fact, the cultural legitimacy of White's middle ground concept is the foundation of Metcalf's in-between or go-between definition. Quote, operating in a middle ground where the influence of the empire is weak, go-betweens were often used to arbitrate relations in ways that over time benefited the interests of the European rather than the Indian world, end quote. Because go-betweens settled the role of at least two differing cultures, they constantly had to determine which avenue would serve them and or their people the best, something Metcalf described as, quote, complex and shifting loyalties, end quote. Metcalf labels three types of go-betweens, physical, transactional, and representational. The group of go-betweens that we're going to talk about today are what Metcalf called the translators, negotiators, and cultural brokers, unquote, which I believe falls into the transactional go-betweens. In this group, Metcalf blends the traditional idea of a translator and complicates it with White's theory of the middle ground. When the translator is operating as a go-between or operating in the middle ground, they are doing much more than just rewording messages. They are integral in every part of the conquering process. The cases of La Malinche and Geronimo de Aguilar and how they are treated by modern historians exemplifies the new focus on indigenous allies' role in Cortez's success in modern-day Mexico. Because these two translators worked as go-betweens and legitimized the Spanish culture to their indigenous counterparts, which directly benefited the Europeans and helped their conquering be successful. So first, we're going to look at Geronimo de Aguilar, because in our timeline, he is Cortez's first interpreter. So when Cortez first landed in Mexico, he heard of two Spaniards living in the Yucatan Peninsula, relatively close to where he landed and settled. These Spaniards were survivors of a shipwreck from an earlier expedition, and they were possible allies, so Cortez sent word to them through indigenous intermediaries. And note here, these are not go-betweens. These are strictly translators. And I think it's important to realize that there really is a difference, and Go-betweens serve a much bigger role than literally just sending messages. Anyways, one of these survivors, our man, Geronimo, 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 I'm sorry, Aguilar, he did actually start his time with Cortez as a translator between Spanish and Mayan speakers. The other man, Gonzalo Guerrero refused to come because he had married into local society and did not want to rejoin the Spanish society. Later, when Spaniards tried to conquer the mire of the Yucatan Peninsula, Guerrero was written as an instrumental force in helping the Mayan people resist. A little side note here, historians currently think that Guerrero was a mythical figure who did not actually exist. I love Guerrero, and if he was real, Guerrero, I'm very sorry that we are discounting your story, sir. I think it's amazing, and I think you're really cool. But back on track. 
Not much time has been put into examining Aguilar's role as Cortez's interpreter, especially when compared to his successor, La Malinche. The fullest account of his rescue by Cortez from comes from the 19th century historian William H. Prescott. Now this is a bear, this is a long now this is a long quote so bear with me but it is important and worded very well. Okay, so Prescott Prescott says, quote, his name was Geronimo de Aguilar, a native of Ecija in Old Spain, where he had been regularly educated for the church. He had been established with the colony at Darien, and on a voyage from that place to Hispaniola eight years previous, was wrecked near the coast of Yucatan. He escaped with several of his companions in the ship's boat, where some perished from hunger and exposure, while others were sacrificed on their reaching land by the cannibal natives of the peninsula. Aguilar was preserved from the same dismal fate by escaping into the interior, where he fell into the hands of a powerful kike, who, though he spared his life, treated him at first with great rigor. The patience of the captive, however, and his singular humility touched the better feelings of the chieftain, who would have persuaded Aguilar to take a wife among his people, but the ecclesiastic steadily refused, in obedience to his vows. In short, Aguilar became a great man among the Indians. On appearing before Cortez, the poor man saluted him in the Indian style by touching the earth with his hand and carrying it to his head. The commander, raising him up, affectionately embraced him, covering him at the same time with his own cloak, as Aguilar was simply clad in the habiliments of the country, somewhat too scanty for a European eye. End quote. So, with Aguilar, he's actually a big win for the Spanish, because he'd quote-unquote gone native, that's how they would have looked at it, when he'd assimilated to the culture that he found himself in after the shipwreck. But when he was reintroduced to Spanish society and Christianity and all that jazz, he reverted right back and was herded into Cortez's flock. Yet, even as a born-again Spaniard, Aguilar was an extremely beneficial tool for Cortez because he knew a lot of the insider information about Mayan culture and society. He knew much more than just the language, and so he could help Cortez at least kind of navigate the cultures in the early months of his stay in Mexico. And yet, with all of this, historians really aren't too bothered about Aguilar, and he almost exclusively takes second place to La Malinche in modern historical records. With that said, historians do like to look at the middle ground Aguilar occupied before he became an interpreter for Cortes. Though being held captive for eight years, Aguilar is regarded as a faithful Christian, quote, in spite of whatever native customs he might have adopted, unquote, in the words of Rolina Adorno. In this way, the Spanish were able to claim Aguilar as one of their own without embarrassment. He became a successory of the power of the Spaniards and of the superiority of Christian culture. Historian Fernando Cervantes described Aguilar as, quote, a man of remarkable resilience and strength of character because he was able to keep up with the daily recitations of the divine office of Franciscan friar, unquote. 
So taking into consideration all these descriptions of Aguilar's devotion to Christianity, his role as a go-between was not cooperating with the enemy, but instead being a sort of outside-inside man, a man from old Spain who had gained legitimacy within the Mayan population and therefore could work as both a success story of the Spanish culture's superiority, but also as an interpreter between the two cultures. At any rate, Though so much emphasis is placed on Aguilar's pre-interpreter role as a go-between, he still played an important role in the beginning of Cortez's conquest, like I was saying earlier. Cortez was desperate for a translator that he could trust, and at least in my opinion, that he could manipulate when he first arrived in Spain. Not in Spain, that he first arrived in Mexico. I'm sure it felt like a godsend to the conquistador-to-be when he heard that there was already two Spaniards living amongst the population that could help him. Now, unfairly, I think, modern historians only look at Aguilar as a man of convenience for Cortez in the story. And I'm sure that's how Cortez saw Aguilar, and we'll go to see that he does drop Aguilar as soon as he gets La Malinche. But for the historians themselves to overlook Aguilar is really sad. They just look at him as a shipwrecked Spaniard who served as a sort of preview until the main picture, La Malinche, learned Spanish, became Cortez's main interpreter, and made Aguilar irrelevant. But I don't think that's fair. Clearly, as I've been talking for the past however many minutes, I think that Aguilar played a very, a very real and a very important and underrated role in Cortez's success. To kind of wrap up Aguilar's role, let's spotlight the two major factors that deemed Aguilar as a less important go-between for Cortez than his successor, La Malinche. First, his lack of cultural nuance, and second, his mastering of only the Yucatec Maya language. The first point is expressed above, where his interest in cultural mixing comes from his rescue, not necessarily his work as an interpreter. And because he didn't fully convert to the Mayan culture, sticking to his Christian guns, I have a feeling he never really expanded outside the community that took him in. So he had a limited view of the Mexica society. It was definitely infinitely more wisdom than Cortez had, but still rudimentary and a lot less than La Malinche. For the second point, his language being Yucatec Maya was really Aguilar's downfall. The issue was that Cortez was trying to conquer Mexico. Particularly, he had his eye on the quote-unquote capital, Tenochtitlan. And I say like quote-unquote capital because that's how we understand it in our modern understanding of society. It doesn't really look like that's how the Mexico would have approached it. But anyway, they didn't speak Yucatan Maya in central Mexico where Tenochtitlan was. They spoke Nahuatl. Therefore, Aguilar's understanding of Yucatec Maya was no help to Cortez once he kind of settled into Mexico and put his conquering pants on. Aguilar's inadequacy with the Nahuatl language ousted Aguilar from Cortez's favor and banished him to the outskirts of what would become a famous historical legend. If it had not been for Malinson's extraordinary ability to function in more than one Mayan dialect and her deafness in assessing situations, they would have been lost, literally and figuratively, on more than one occasion. 
This is what Camilla Townsend said in her book, Melinza's Choices, An Indian Woman in the Conquest of Mexico. Effectively, Townsend attributes Cortez's successful conquest of Mexico directly to Aguilar's successor, La Malinche, who Townsend is calling Melinzen, which, remember, is what they think is her birth name. And Townsend isn't the only one. This is a largely accepted interpretation of how Cortez, the underdog with no resources and no men and no backup, toppled such a powerful nation in so short a time. And why could La Malinche do this where Aguilar couldn't? Because she understood multiple languages throughout Mexico, particularly Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica. However, of course, she was not just born this way. Unfortunately, La Malinche's place in history is pretty exclusively tied to her relationship with the Spanish, so little is known of her younger life, and even less is known about her post-1527 life, which is the year when Cortes left Mexico. And all we really know post-1527 is that she died in or around that year. I'd love to talk about her upbringing and how that shaped her, um, like we can with Cortes, but the records just aren't there. So we'll work with what vague information we have. Her birth year is thought to be around 1502. Born in a family with high cultural status, she was sold by her mother so that her inheritance could go to a younger half-brother. This selfish act from her mother not only disconnected La Malinche from her roots and made her sort of apathetic to her nation, but also when she was sold from her birthplace, and I'm not even entirely sure where that was. She was sold from there to D Tabasco. This is where she picked up Mayan in addition to her native Nahuatl. When she was around 17 years old, which would be in 1519, which for our sharp-eared listeners was the year that Cortez landed in Mexico, La Malinche was quote-unquote given to Cortez as a gift from the people of Tabasco. And I would just like to say, I hate that. You can't gift a person like a, a sort of object, like she's a bottle of wine or something, but you see it everywhere. That's how it's described. Modern historians, contemporary historians, she was seen as a gift by the Tabasco people to try and make peace with Cortez. So either way, once La Malinche was living with the Spanish, this is when her story really begins in modern historical records. So we know that when La Malinche was first given to Cortez in 1519, she did not know Spanish. This created an interpretation chain between her, Aguilar, and Cortez, and all the communities that they were trying to communicate with. Our 18th century historian William Prescott explained how this chain of interpretation worked. Quote, from her place of birth, she was well acquainted with the Mexican tongue, which indeed she is said to have spoken with great elegance. Her residence in Tabasco familiarized her with the dialects of that country so that she could carry on a conversation with Aguilar, which he in turn rendered into the Castilian or the Spanish, unquote. So basically, La Malinche would communicate with the Mexica people and she would tell Aguilar what they said and then Aguilar would tell Cortez what Malinche said. Clearly, this was not a feasible nor a sustainable method of communication. If you've ever played around a telephone, you know how quickly this could get out of control. Plus, Lala Minchi, though we know little and everyone wants to paint her as 
either a submissive female interpreter or as some resentful traitor, which we'll get to later. What she was was smart and she was sharp. She knew that she needed to make herself valuable to Cortez to make her life more bearable. And so she went right to work learning Spanish. Unfortunately for our friend Aguilar, the more Spanish and Spanish ways that La Malinche learned, the less important he became. So once La Malinche mastered the language, Aguilar really became an expendable resource. Quickly, he faded into the background and La Malinche stepped into the spotlight. When describing La Malinche's role in the conquest of Mexico, historian Cordelia Candelaria said, quote, La Malinche's facile learning of Castilian Spanish, her familiarity with the country, and her insight into the native customs and habits quickly made her indispensable to Cortez, whom she attended, even in battle, throughout his incursion into the heartland of Mexico, unquote. So as you can see, La Malinche did more than just translate, way more. She helped in every step of the conquering process because not only did she know the languages, but she also understood the cultural context clues of both the Spanish and the native communities, which allowed her to gain the trust or anticipate tricks or both and more. La Malinche could perform a range of functions as an indigenous interpreter that Aguilar simply could not. He was merely a captive for eight years, but was at heart always Spanish. So where Aguilar was in an in-between before the conquest, a sex oh wow, a success story of dipping your toe into the indigenous culture and still going back to the Spanish, therefore legitimizing the strength of the Spanish culture. La Malinche was holistically standing in the middle ground. She was born and raised in Mexico. She knew the languages and she understood the culture. But she also had no specific attachment or love for the people that had passed her around like an object. And so she learned Spanish and she learned their, their customs and used all of this information to give herself the best chance possible. Granted that La Malinche played such a pivotal role in the Mexico-Spanish middle ground, and because she exemplifies perfectly the confusing, complicated figure of the go-between, a lot of modern discourse about Cortez's conquest of Mexico has her at its core. What's interesting is all of the debates that surround this discourse. She's not just seen as a woman making do with the horrible cards she's given. She's not even seen as a 2D figure who helped the amazing and powerful Cortez overcome the little hurdle of language barriers. And no. While many historians are simply fascinated by La Malinche, she is hated by a lot of people in Mexico to this day. Candelaria's article, La Malinche, Feminist Prototype, is one of the many that shows as early as the 19th century, La Malinche's relationship with the Spanish was condemned and she was considered a traitor to her people and, quote, a conniving conspirator who had deserted her own people in favor of material gain. La Malinche remains one of the few indigenous figures in the conquest of Mexico to be viewed with contempt, unquote. For the longest time, this was the only view of La Malinche. She was the native that brought down her own nation, right? She sold out to the Spanish and they would have failed in their conquest without her. So the fall of the Mexican empire lies squarely on her shoulders. But in the 21st century, historians have started to shift the narrative. Candelaria makes the argument that La Malinche's title as traitor to her nation is unfounded and even, quote, grossly naive, unquote. 
Candelaria calls out the Mexica leader Montezuma and his tyrannical reign that La Malinche couldn't have possibly done anything about, and that's pretty solid. But I do also think that we need to discuss the complex loyalties La Malinche held as a go-between. Historian Alida Simetkaf claimed that, quote, go-betweens influenced the power dynamics, unquote, between competing cultures. So, like, what go-betweens legitimized in either culture gave it more authority in negotiations and communications between the two. And when discussing the help La Malinche lent this Spanish conquest of Mexico, it is imperative to remember her, although vague, history. She was sold away from her birth culture into another indigenous but completely different society, and then she was passed on again to the Spanish. So, as Townsend claims, quote, psychologically speaking, La Malinche was not in a position to yearn for her old home or to resist learning to think as the strangers did. She knew that her survival was dependent on the Spaniard's survival, unquote. So, of course, she was going to carefully assess both cultures and then figure out which of each she needed to adhere to to keep herself safe, right? I mean, it seems fair to assess then that La Malinche was just playing her role as a go-between perfectly. Her loyalties were scrambled with the lack of solidity within her home culture and with an immersion into the Spanish culture. She didn't have any loyalty that required a taste of the strangers. So she just did what she had to do. The prevailing assumption that La Malinche's actions were bathed in malice are just much too simple for the complicated relationship of conflicting cultures. She wasn't trying to burn down Mexico as some sort of retribution. She wasn't trying to tear down the Mexica empire. Instead, La Malinche's actions are an attempt at a middle ground, where La Malinche used her status as a go-between to legitimize Spanish culture in Mexico knowing before anyone else that they were not going to be leaving, and so they had to come to some sort of cohabitative status. I think that's what she truly believed um, until, unfortunately, the Spanish conquered out the Mexica. So what have we learned? Geronimo de Aguilar and La Malinche are two historical figures critical to Hernan Cortez's story. Though they both played the role of interpreter, their roles in the historical moment of the conquest of Mexico are recorded very, very differently. Though in very different ways, both of Cortez's interpreters fulfilled the role of go-betweens, people who straddled two cultures and tried to reconcile those conflicting parts of their identity. Aguilar has escaped most character criticism from modern historians, while they often find him futile in his interpreter role after La Malinche's mastery of Spanish, his reputation as a faithful Christian, a loyal Spaniard, is carefully preserved. He's a sort of prequel go-between, where he was shipwrecked in Mexico, he assimilated to Mexican culture, but when Cortez found him eight years later, he re-established himself as a Spaniard. His combination of the cultures happened purely for survival. But aside from his miraculous, insert air quotes here, returned to Christianity after going native, more air quotes, Aguilar is pretty disregarded by modern historians after La Malinche arrives. In contrast to Aguilar, La Malinche is the prime example of Metcalf's concept of a transactional go-between, and she actively participated in White's concept of the middle ground. 
She wasn't just a native who knew both indigenous languages and Spanish. She served as Cortez's, quote, interpreter, advisor, messenger, informer, and peacemaker, end quote. And that's a list from Julie Johnson Greer, another historian whose work was prominent in my research. La Malinche constantly and actively worked to legitimize Spanish culture to her own people. Whether this was an act of malice and selfishness or just a go-between's conflicting loyalty is still contested in historians' accounts of La Malinche. No matter the intention, it is indisputable that she was a priceless addition to Cortez's conquest. Without her, historians widely accept that he would not have conquered the Mexica Empire at all. And at the very least... He wouldn't have done it nearly as fast or nearly as efficiently. Together, Geronimo de Aguilar and La Malinche form a fascinating pair to analyze theories like White's Middle Ground and Metcalf's Go-Between, thus opening discussions of the complexity of indigenous-slash-European cultural clashes. Understanding both Aguilar and La Malinche's roles in the conquest of Mexico, and also the different ways historians treat these figures, shows an increased focus on the cultural exchanges in Latin America, as well as the increased visibility of indigenous allies to conquerors' initiatives. All right, folks, that is it for today. I love Latin American history. I just want to say, I think it is so fascinating. And if I knew a single lick of Spanish, I would be all over it. Unfortunately, I am an American pleb who only knows English and rudimentary French, um, but I can still get insights like this story thanks to classes in college like Early North America with Professor Dr. Lauren McDonald. She's an incredible historian who didn't laugh at me when I absolutely could not pronounce Tenochtitlan during discussions. So if you found this story fascinating, go take a gander through the sources on the epi- in the episode description. I would specifically recommend the 2018 edition of Victors and Vanquished, Spanish and Nahu le- Views of the Fall of the Mexica Empire, A Brief History with Documents, edited by Stuart B. Schwartz and Tatiana Sahayas. Sayas. Yeah. So it's a collection of primary sources translated into English where necessary. Each section has a preface by the editor, so you kind of know the themes that the primary sources are going over. It is so good. It's really fascinating. And there's also a bunch of beautiful artwork depicting the Mexica Empire before it was destroyed. So yeah, go take a look at that. And then while you're at it, go follow me at Nishi History underscore pod on Instagram. If you'd like to get a hold of me, recommend topics, et cetera, et cetera, the email is nishihistorypodcast at gmail.com. Then go like, rate, subscribe, follow, leave a five-star review, any, all of them, please, so that we can all keep enjoying our travels into weird pockets of time. That's all I got for you for now, and I will see you next week where we'll open another time capsule to a niche tale in history. (laughs) 